Warning, today's story contains explicit sexual content, and ghosts, and Japanese culture, any or all of which may weird some people out. Escape Pod 77 October 26, 2006 Today's story, A Single Shadow, by Stephen Deadman. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. Happy Halloween to all of you costumed party people, and a blessed Samhain to the pagan folk. I guess this is the right week to talk about horror. I haven't brought it up here much, and to be honest, that's because I've got some conflicting opinions about the genre. It's fair to say that the industry of literary horror hasn't been as healthy lately as other speculative fiction. Horror was a huge seller in the 80s, brought to the front of the bestseller lists with writers like Stephen King and Dean Kuntz, and that led to oversupply and the whole genre crashed. I don't think it's really recovered yet, although there are some very promising new markets in short fiction, and novels have gone through a few waves of recycling horror under other names, like dark fantasy, or most recently, paranormal romance. The idea being, if you can't make vampires and werewolves scary anymore, then you may as well make them sex objects. And that's really my problem with a lot of what's commonly called horror. It's just like Halloween as a holiday. The creatures and legends and images that used to evoke real fear, real feelings, are reduced to parodies of themselves, and they've lost any real power to do more than titillate. It's not the fault of the ideas, they've just been overcooked. My complaint here isn't universal. There is good stuff being written, and there are even a few good movies that are actually scary. I consider it the difference between deep horror and shallow horror. Shallow horror relies heavily on imagery, whether it's the cliché monsters or just lots of blood and fast editing. There could be some shock value in it, and yeah, it can be a lot of fun, but it doesn't stick in your head, and there's a very thin line between shallow horror and humor. Deep horror is usually more psychological and more character-driven. Sometimes it uses the stock elements, and sometimes it doesn't, but it's not about the images. It's about making you identify with a situation in which fear is justified. It presents characters with things that they can't understand or that they don't have the strength to confront. And if the story succeeds, you feel what they feel. That feeling, that endorphin buzz, is pretty strong stuff. And that's what people read it for. And here comes the plug. When we launched Pseudopod, a horror podcast, we did it because I felt that there was a demand for that sort of deep horror, and I didn't think we could present it on EscapePod. We've done shallow horror before. Last year's Halloween story, The Great Old Pumpkin, was really funny, and I don't think my friend is a lesbian zombie is going to give anyone nightmares. We'll probably keep doing it. But to enjoy deep horror, you have to pretty much want to be disturbed, and I know that for many of you, that's not what you're looking for in your entertainment. If you are, you can find it at pseudopod.org. Horror is a deeply subjective experience, probably more than any other genre, and we don't guarantee that every story will sink its hooks into everyone. But the editors, Moore Lafferty and Ben Phillips, really know their horror, and there are enough dark ideas out there that we think you'll find at least one or two that'll bother you deeply. For me, the flash piece over there, Your Shoes, is the one that still gives me chills. So, all that said, here's a nice exotic ghost story. Probably not deep horror, but fun, and possibly thought-provoking. We present A Single Shadow by Stephen Dedman. Mr. Deadman lives in Western Australia, although from the breadth of his work you get the sense that he's traveled pretty much everywhere. He's the author of several novels. 
The latest one is in the Shadowrun game universe, A Fistful of Data. Which is cool, I love Shadowrun. He's also a story editor at Borderlands, a non-profit magazine featuring quality Australian SF fantasy and horror. The story is read for us by Benjamin Grundy, the host of the Mysterious Universe podcast. They are dedicated to news from beyond the mainstream, looking at things like UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and future science. They've got great production values and a fun style, so if you're interested in this stuff, check them out. Now take a cold shower and think about baseball. It's story time. A Single Shadow by Stephen Dedman It was November, which made it nearly two months since I'd arrived in Tokyo, and the local shows had been much funnier when I hadn't really understood them. But the apartment was tiny and my bed was also the tiny family sofa, so I sat there and tried to read. Maybe by the time I went home, I'd have learnt the domestic deafness, which is the Japanese substitute for privacy. Not that I'd need it back in Perth, but what the hell. When Mrs. Tani ducked back into the kitchen, I turned to Hiroshi and said as sato voce as possible, Saw you with Shimiko today. Does this mean you're back together? Anyone who thinks the Japanese are inscrutable hasn't seen one jump the way Hiroshi did. He stared at me for a moment, then whispered back, No, not me. I haven't seen her in a week, and hurried out of the room. Miyumi, his sister, glanced at him over the edge of her magazine, and then disappeared behind it again. Was it something I said? I muttered in English. Miyumi looked warily at me, then shook her head. You must have mistaken someone else for him, Dione-san, she replied, also in English. Please don't call me that. Less than a week after I'd begun teaching, I'd become known as Tony Dione, Tony the Great Goblin Demon. I mean, it's hardly my fault. I'm red-headed, green-eyed, and nearly two metres tall. And don't try and tell me you all look the same either. I know Hiroshi when I see him. He was even wearing my Cerebus t-shirt. There's nearly 12 million people in Tokyo, Tony-san, said Miyumi patiently. There must be more than one Cerebus t-shirt, and if it was Hiroshi you saw then it was not Shimiko you saw him with. I could have corrected her grammar, but didn't. You do not know her as well as I do, Hiroshi. That was true, but while I'm generally pretty good at remembering faces, I'm excellent at remembering pretty ones. And Shimiko, while too young for me, was nearly as stunning as Miyumi, whose name, aptly enough, meant beautiful dream. Okay, so I've fallen in love with one of my students everywhere I've taught, or so it always seemed at the time. Maybe one day I'll find some way of knowing when I'm really in love and settle down instead of hurrying to the next city. Maybe, I conceded, just to see Miyumi smile before she vanished behind a magazine again. I sighed silently and returned to reading Kwaidun. I've never been very good at researching the places I visit before I get there, and most of what I knew about Japan came from the Lonely Planet guidebook, a lot of Kurosawa movies, a crash course in language, and the works of Lasadio Hearn, a half-Irish, half-Greek dishwasher, proofreader, and hack-writer-turned-translator, teacher, and folklorist. My sort of person, eh? He'd written book after book of Japanese exotica, or kwaidan, the Japanese word for weird tales, about a century ago, and written them so beautifully that no one really cared whether the legends, poems, and horror stories they contained were authentic. I lost myself for a few minutes in his story of the Rokuro Kubi, when I looked up again, Miyumi had gone, leaving the magazine on the floor open at the centerfold, a colour picture of a fairly pretty Japanese girl of about Miyumi's age, 
naked except for a strategically placed octopus. Back home, it would have been considered pornographic, but this was a family magazine with comics and a sports section. One day, I thought I might understand the Japanese language, but the Japanese themselves, never. The next day, I saw Hiroshi and Shimiko again, this time at Shinjuku Station. It looked as though he were following her and she ignoring him, but that might have been some sort of courtship ritual. Suddenly, though, she ducked into the ladies' room, leaving him standing outside looking foolish. He hesitated for a moment, then vanished into the crowd, or maybe into the toilets or behind one of the vending machines. All I know is that he wasn't there when I looked again a second later. I didn't think of it again until I returned home and found him watching a video of Terminator 2. Done your English homework? I asked teasingly as I sat down behind him. He reached down and handed me a sheet of paper. I looked at it and then up at the TV screen when I heard Hiroshi chuckle. The T2, shape changed into the brat's foster mother, had just impaled the foster father, which meant that the movie had been running for at least half an hour. The homework, even if it had been done with maximum haste and minimal enthusiasm, would have taken another half hour. When did you get home? About 4.30. Why? I could have sworn I'd seen him on the other side of Tokyo at a quarter to five, at the earliest, and it was barely quarter past. Any phone calls for me? No, said Miyumi from the kitchen before Hiroshi could answer. Thanks, I said, and started correcting Hiroshi's homework, wondering why he might bother lying to me. Maybe he thought it was none of my business, or none of anyone's business. He was only 16 after all, and Shimiko already had quite a reputation as a heartbreaker. Maybe the affair embarrassed him. But why was Miyumi covering for him? Well, she was his sister, as well as a psych major. She must have known him better than I did, and presumably had her reasons. I finished correcting the homework, then reached into my day pack for my battered copy of Hearn's The Romance of the Milky Way, and turned to the chapter of Goblin Poetry. It was weird, I thought, how many creatures in Japanese mythology were shapeshifters, routinely taking human form to deceive their victims. Or maybe not weird, not in a country where gangsters openly wore the emblems of their syndicates on lapel pins, but certainly interesting. I didn't much mind that Hearn had decided not to translate the stories of the three-eyed monk, the acolyte with the lantern, the stone that cries in the night, the goblin heron, or even the faceless babe, but I wished he'd been more impressed by the long-tongued maiden and the pillow mover. I also would have liked to have known more about how goblin foxes turned old horse bones into beautiful girls. It might come in useful. Still reading the fairy stories again, Tony-san. I looked up to see that Miyumi was standing beside me, shaking her head. Are you ever going to grow up? Sit down and say that. Besides, this is anthropology. Antho... I tried to think of the Japanese word for anthropology without success. Uh, you've heard of Margaret Mead? Yes, of course. Didn't she do that book about Samoa after all of the native girls had lied to her? Touché. I suppose you think we turn into cats and foxes when your back is turned. I smiled. Only some of you. You, for example. You're much too beautiful to be human. But you could be a cat, a flower, a tree. No, scratch that one. You're too short. I glanced at Hiroshi. Maybe Shimiko's the tree spirit, I said softly. Hiroshi ignored me, but Miyumi covered her mouth and laughed. I assure you I'm quite human, she said, 
and I don't doubt that Shimiko is too. And how many girls have you used that line on before? I think that one's original. Thank you, she said too politely. What line did you use on your girlfriend in Taipei? May? I tried writing her a poem, but my Chinese wasn't up to it. And her English. And the one in Bangkok or Mexico City? What are you trying to do, write my biography? I'm trying to understand you, Tony-san. Isn't that what you're trying to do to us? She leaned closer and whispered, Or do you just want to sleep with us? Only you, I whispered back without any hesitation. Mrs. Tani didn't understand English, and Hiroshi knew how and when to keep his mouth shut. And only if that's what you want. Why only me? Because it's only you I'm in love with. Don't Japanese ever fall in love without burning down Tokyo? In the tiny park near the apartment, there was a memorial to Oshiichi, a 17-year-old girl who had been burnt at the stake in 1683 for torching her father's house in an ill-advised attempt to reunite herself with her samurai lover. Miyumi laughed, loudly enough that Hiroshi turned around to look at us. She glanced at him, and he hastily returned his attention to the television. Of course we do, she said in more normal tones. We haven't always regarded it as the most important thing in the universe, or everyone's inalienable right. But then, neither have Westerners. And we no longer think of it as the great dragon demon either. It's just something that happens. I shrugged. I grew up on a farm. I didn't even see a city until I went away to university. And I've long suspected that romantic love is like traffic jams in good bookshops. Something you're much more likely to find in big cities, and the bigger, the better. If you see a thousand women on the subway every morning, you can pick and choose, or at least dream. Living in a small country town, you take what you can get. Me, I'd chosen to spend the five years since I'd graduated in some of the largest cities on earth. Cities so crowded you rarely saw your own shadow. What about you personally? Have you ever been in love? She raised her eyebrows innocently and smiled broadly. Of course, Tony's son, but love is one thing and sex is another. Please remember, this is not Australia. Rents are high here, privacy expensive, and most of us cannot afford to leave home until we have been working for many years, often not even then. Competition for places in the universities is much more intense. You must have heard of examination hell, so we have to spend more time studying. She pointedly didn't even glance at Hiroshi. And our doctors will not prescribe the pills which your teenagers take for granted. Perhaps because they believe them to be too dangerous. But possibly because they make too much money out of abortions. I know it's not romantic, but Japanese girls have learnt when and how to say no. The meek little women who do everything men tell them are as mythical as your kitsune, rikombio and gaki. In truth, we rule our men from birth. That's why they work so hard to keep what power they have, and why they never come home at night. Then she bent over, kissed me quickly on the tip of my nose, and ducked back into the kitchen. I sat there, rubbing my nose absent-mindedly. Kitsune were goblin foxes, and Gaki were hungry ghosts. But what the hell were Rikombio? I found the answer in Hearn, where else? Rikombio, literally ghost sickness, was a doppelganger. An apparition created by unrequited love, or the love for someone now dead. In the poem Hearn quoted, the Rikombio stayed at home with the original, both yearning after the far-journeying husband. But Hearn also stated that 
one of these bodies would go to join the absent beloved, while the other remained home. I looked over at Hiroshi and shook my head. Sure, I loved ghost stories and old legends, but this was one of the most modern cities on earth. It was like believing there were vampires in Washington. Well, you know what I mean. Besides, Hearn had written that Recombio were of the gentler sex, whatever that meant in Japan. I continued to stare until the movie ended and Miyumi began setting the table for dinner. On Saturday night, Miyumi took me to a party at Tokyo University to meet her psych class. I was suspicious of her motives. Hiroshi had told me that she had at least three boyfriends at the university at any one time and was careful not to show favouritism to any of them. So this may have just been another psych experiment, but what the hell, I would have followed Miyumi into a leper colony or karaoke bar. Once at the party, Miyumi disappeared into the throng, presumably giving equal time to her triad, and leaving me to dance and converse with a group of students who knew even less about Australia than I did about Japan. It was exhausting but amusing, and at least no one asked me to sing. More importantly, it gave us a moment of real privacy on the way home. As we walked from the station to the apartment, Miyumi had been teasing me about having drawn a crowd, and I was accusing her of the same. She denied it, and I asked, So what are they? The Recombio. She laughed convincingly, and said, Of course not, there's no such thing, I told you that. I looked at her, and realised she was lying. She tried walking faster to get some distance between us, but it was a wasted effort. I could hop faster than she could run. Then why do I keep seeing Hiroshi following Shimiko when he's supposed to be somewhere else? Then it couldn't have been him. You were mistaken. No, I wasn't. I told you, there's no such thing. You saw someone who looked like Hiroshi. Next time I'll take a photograph. It won't work, she said as we hurried through the park and then stopped suddenly at the memorial of Oshiichi, her face white. We stared at each other for a moment, and then I asked, You knew, didn't you? Knew what? About Hiroshi. No, she said quietly. I didn't know about Hiroshi until you told me. About Recombio, then? Of course, I told you about them, if you remember. They exist? Yes, they exist, she said heavily. They're rare, and you can't duplicate them in a laboratory. It's been tried. But yes, they do exist. We stood there in silence, apart from the passing traffic and the occasional plane from the nearby airport. And then I said, Laboratory? Psychologists have tried to create them, usually with hypnosis. It's worked sometimes, but not often enough for anyone to risk making a fool of himself by presenting a paper on it. Jesus. We still don't really know what causes them. What do psychologists know about love anyway? She said with a twisted smile. We know they're rare, but even if they were one in a million, there'd be 12 of them in Tokyo alone. They're real enough to fool anyone in most circumstances, but they don't cast shadows or show up on film. And we know they're sterile. We managed to get a sperm sample from one. No, I'm not going to tell you how. There are old stories about men and women having sex with them. They're said to be very good lovers because they're eager to please, and that's really all they exist for, rather like butterflies. And do they die after a day too? Miyumi smiled. You keep saying how often you've been in love, Tony-san. Does that die after a day? However long that love lasts, unrequited and with that sort of intensity, they last. Usually they just disappear. We've never found a body of one. 
I suspect a lot of suicide attempts are really recombio, but that's just a theory. I can't prove it. I shuddered. What'll happen to Hiroshi? I don't know. Probably nothing. Usually they just get over it, find someone else who loves them back, fall sanely in love instead of madly. The shock hadn't quite worn off by Monday when the recombio followed Shimiko into my English class, but Domeki-sensei was too polite to mention it, so what was a humble teaching assistant like myself supposed to do? A few of the girls giggled behind their hands, but nothing more. Shimiko herself remained as poised as ever. I was sufficiently startled that it took me, me, most of the lesson to recognise the telltale signs of a teenage girl who's just gotten laid and is trying not to be too visibly smug about it. I stared at the recombio while earnestly trying to explain Australian rules football to the class. He was as inscrutable as the Japanese are supposed to be. I babbled on, wondering if this was a tremendous hoax. Perhaps there was no apparition, only an obsessive teenager who had skipped a class to... No. I knew the Japanese well enough to know that this being tolerated, especially near examination hell, was much less likely than a ghost in a classroom. The lesson continued harmoniously enough until the siren sounded for the next class. The second last of the day I remembered with relief. A moment later, I remembered that Hiroshi was in that class, and he always rushed there hoping to see Shimiko before she left. Shimiko seemed to be taking forever to pack her bag and leave the room. She was only halfway to the door, with a recombio puppy-like at her heels, when Hiroshi walked in. Back home it would have been the prelude to a screaming match, maybe even a brawl, but Hiroshi merely looked from one face to the other for a few seconds, his expression horrified, then stared straight into the recombio's eyes. It looked for all the world like one of those scenes from the Kurosawa films, the contest of wills between two samurai. For a moment, the apparition seemed to fade into the dingy painted wall, and then Shimiko took a step forward, and then walked past Hiroshi without looking at him again. The recombio followed her out. Domeki-sensei turned to the blackboard and began writing. I was on my way to the station that evening when I saw Shimiko again. The recombio was still following her, but this time he was wearing a Cerebus t-shirt again, with a new pair of Levi 501s. He seemed taller too, with clearer skin. In fact, I realised though unmistakably male, he looked more like Shimiko than Hiroshi. I scanned the crowd for the real Hiroshi, but there was no sign of him. I caught the next train to Shinagawa and walked to the apartment. He wasn't in the living room or his bedroom, but the place didn't feel empty. I tried listening, but the traffic noises from outside drowned out any recognisable sounds of movement. Hiroshi? No answer. I stood in the living room for a moment, and then noticed that Miyumi's bedroom door was closed. I knocked on it softly, and there was a distinct gasp from within. Miyumi? There was a sound inside that might have been scuffling, and then, what is it? Can I come in? No, don't open the door. Despite myself, I smiled. Okay, but I need to talk to you. Hiroshi, well, it's about your, uh, psych experiment. Look, I'll be waiting in the living room, okay? I collapsed onto the sofa, closed my eyes and tried to think. Finally, I heard Miyumi's door open and then close again. I recounted the afternoon's events as concisely and dispassionately as I could and concluded, I guess the recombio's about equal parts Hiroshi's frustration and Shimiko's narcissism now. Is that common? No, 
What'll happen now? I don't know, she said, sitting beside me, smelling unmistakably of dynamite sex. It'll probably disappear before very long. Or Hiroshi will. Has he been home? No. I nodded and opened my eyes. Despite her obvious worry, she was still glowing and looked even more beautiful now than ever. Your boyfriend, is he a psych student too? No. You might as well bring him out. He can't stay in there forever. She smiled hesitantly and something went click in my brain. I rolled off the sofa and hurtled down the corridor. Tony, no! Opening her bedroom door would have been obscenely rude even in Australia. In Tokyo, it was probably a capital crime, but I had to know. He was red-headed and nearly two metres tall. I could see what colour his eyes were in the dim light, but I didn't need to. I don't know how long we stared at each other, but suddenly Miyumi was standing behind me. You said you love me, she whispered. Isn't it good to know you were telling the truth? I turned around and then walked out of the apartment without another word. The youth hostel had a nine o'clock curfew, which was ridiculous for Tokyo, but it gave me enough time for a few drinks and a decision. I was on contract until the end of school year, so I couldn't leave Tokyo, but if I stayed in a hostel and stuck to a vegetarian diet, I could save enough for an airline ticket. The only thing that remained was to choose somewhere to go. The more Kirin beer I drank, the better Taipei looked. I could spend some time with May, maybe get my old job there back. I changed a few notes for coins and headed for the phone. The phone rang five times before being answered by a man with a faint Australian accent. It took me a moment to recognise my own voice, and then I hung up immediately. Then I went back to the bar, had another drink, and my shadow and I went back to the hostel and to bed. And that was our story. Does anyone else get that feeling? So, our story from two weeks ago, Nano Comes to Clifford Falls, generated a lot of thoughtful discussion in the comments. Most of the comments were rather long and elaborate, so it's hard to pick out anyone to quote. Many people enjoyed the story for its themes. Andy wrote, I work in nanotech, and it's refreshing to hear the technology being defined as good or evil by the people wielding it. But there was also a lot of detailed criticism. Some people didn't like the characters, the negative portrayal of men, or the stereotyping of rural society and single moms. Others took issue with what they considered the moral of the piece. As Spork said, farmers will save the world, huh? Or they believed that the shake-up of society was a little too simple and sudden to be believable. Jay Clark liked the story, but felt that the economics didn't really hold up. For one thing, there was no mention of where the nanomachines were getting their raw materials, and for another, it didn't address that we're really more of a service economy than a product economy. So free products doesn't quite mean everyone gets to stop working. The author, Nancy Kress, also posted a comment to clarify her intent, pointing out that society isn't destroyed in the story, it just undergoes upheaval. She also said, I'm not interested in the kind of polemic that narrows an entire class of human being to a single response to anything, which is why everyone has different reactions to nanotechnology. So yeah, there was great discussion. But the grand prize has to go to Matthew Johnston and Devin Higgins, who have created a brand new podcast specifically to discuss stories from other fiction podcasts. Their name is even a play on Escape Pod. They call it Retrieval Detachment. I like that. Their first episode was a dialogue on Nano Comes to Clifford Falls. Their second was about time travel, with the stories Paradox and Greenblatt, and I Look Forward to Remembering You. 
I've been listening, of course, and it's thoughtful and interesting commentary. If you're looking for more of a story fix, you should check this out. Their idea of the time-traveling plumber is worth listening to all by itself. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is released on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license. You can copy this story all you want, and it won't sleep with anyone you like. I can't speak for our authors, who reserve all other rights. You should also check out our sister podcast, Pseudopod. If you don't know what they do, you must have skipped the intro. If you like what we're doing, tell your friends. And if you can, consider donating to support our buying more stories. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. Their music was created by men. There are many copies. And they have a plan. To rock. That was our show for this week. Our closing quote comes from the Duke de la Rochefoucauld, I know I mispronounced that, who said, True love is like a psychic experience. Everyone tells ghost stories, but few have ever seen a ghost. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, however you're dressed, have fun. <laughs>